I'm Sarah Danu, host of Contrepreneur, where we share the stories of leaders and thinkers who are successfully involved in businesses that have a positive impact in the world. A contrepreneur is everything an entrepreneur is, and a bit more. Contrepreneurs are running businesses for financial profitability, but not at a cost to the environment or the people they do business with. I'm very happy to be here today with Tony Arnerich, CEO of Arnerich Messena, co-founder of 3x5, an advisor to many mission-driven companies, including Fish People, a Pacific Northwest Coast sustainable, traceable, seafood company. Tony is putting his years of experience to use, creating a more sustainable future and working hard to prove to his peers in finance that investing in socially and environmentally responsible businesses can actually be more profitable than traditional investments. We talk about why he chose to organize his businesses as employee-owned benefit corporations, his 50-year journey from his first business to his current impact investment work. We also talk about his work to get more women involved in business, particularly the business of money. Tony and his wife, who's also been his partner in business for many years, have created a program to support at-risk youth at the elementary their children and now their grandchildren attend, where he regularly reads to kids in Spanish. Tony is radiating joy, full of knowledge, and happy to share his experience. I'm here today with Tony Arnerich. We met in line at a coffee shop this morning and conversation just started flowing. I think we talked for an hour about the future of business and its impact on the world. Tony's been an impact investor for many years, focused on water, food, energy, and healthcare. A self-proclaimed old hippie, Tony not only has a smile for everyone around him, he's got years of experience in responsible business and a clear vision for a sustainable future he is actively working towards. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm probably going to make you repeat some things you told me this morning, and we'll just see how that goes. Okay, super. (laughs) Let's go way back. What was your upbringing like? I grew up in Southern California um, in the San Fernando Valley and of a first generation Croatian family. All of my grandparents were born in Croatia and emigrated to the San Fernando Valley. My grandparents had a farm and uh, we pretty much lived off that farm and ate uh, well. Food was a big part of our family. Um, So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and then I went to school in the Bay Area at the University of Santa Clara. And then I continued northbound to Eugene, where I spent uh, a decade in the 70s and then moved to Portland, where I reside today um, with my wife and uh, most of my family. So today you run two companies, Arnie Rich Messina and 3x5, as well as serve as an active advisor to many companies you invest in. Can you tell me a little bit more about the scope of your work today? So there are two firms. One kind of grew out of the other. And so Arnerich Messina is an investment advisory firm that today advises uh, around $20 billion of assets of corporations, endowments, foundations, and high net worth individuals. And it's those high net worth individuals that um, sort of was the breeding ground for the 3 by 5 fund. And um, simultaneously with our vision on the future as it related to sustainability and impact investing, we felt that the three by five could focus on those four key sectors and build really another business uh, in the private equity arena. We've been able to envelop um, what we think is part of the future, this whole genre um, of impact investing. Arnie Rich Messina is an employee-owned company. Uh-huh. Did you start that way? Yes, um, we started with actually myself, my wife, and Lisa Messina. Okay. Uh, and then um, two years ago, we did a management buyout. Lisa Messina left in 1998, so the, the equity flowed to Christine and I. So we were the primary owners. And then two years ago, we sold 80% of 
the equity to nine additional partners. So today we're an 11 person partnership. So what spurred the decision to sell 80% of the shares to your partner? I'm 70 years old oh, okay. and um, you know, live forever. And I knew that in order to keep us independent, to do the best thing for our customers and the best thing for our employees was to be independent and we could sure. you know, self-finance it and make it easy for a lot of employees who helped us build the firm so that they could participate. And today we have a, um, you know, a, a beginning uh, partnership of, of 11 who are, you know, learning to work together. And I would say after two years, you work with your son uh -huh. and your wife. Uh -huh. Can you talk about how you think in um, a long-term fashion for your business and what impact your family has had on that? Uh, it didn't take me too terribly long as I looked through my grandkids' eyes about what was the world going to be like for them. Um, and I kind of think we older white males haven't done the best job in shepherding ourselves through the challenges of globalization and more people and the reality of just unintended consequences of growth. If you, if you looked at the essential things and got real basic and focused, you looked at food, you looked at water. And, and if you began to take this longer term view and you thought, well, government's probably not going to do it. Philanthropy is not going to do it. So why not good old fashioned American capitalism, mm -hmm. you know, with some altruism and some stated values? The things like the B Corps are really cool. So it allows corporations to get past the fiduciary hurdles. So in other words, we as B Corps can not only invest to be profitable, but also to, to leave an imprint or, or make a difference. Mm -hmm. So that new corporate structure has been really helpful, I think, for a lot of us who believe that we need to change the directionality. If you're an early adopter in this space, you need to go to the work mm -hmm. to become a B Corp. It, it doesn't, it's just you just fill out a piece of paper. It takes work. You have to be certified. You know, I just think it's what leaders do to break the mold of the old way and, you know, and say, well, look at this is a really successful private equity firm or this uh -huh. is a really successful fish company. Sure. I think you have to demonstrate that leadership by just doing it. If you don't put an economic impact, I'm just people won't do it. Sure. It's yeah. got to be impactful in multiple ways, but economically mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that's financial sort of, sustainability. Yeah. And right. that's yeah, what yeah. a lot of people who are out with a good idea don't think about at first. And, right. and then that becomes a reason for failure where they hit a wall and they're like, we have to figure this out. But that's something that I don't think is spoken about enough um, in terms of when we're talking about socially good businesses and sustainable businesses is where people are sometimes shy to talk about the economics of it. That just won't work with the people that I invest money for. I mean, sure. we, we are not giving up one nickel of return in order to make the impact. Uh -huh. We have to work harder. We, the firm, have to work harder. We're good at that. We're a good research firm. Mm -hmm. So I think for the most part, um, people just have to get out there and, you know, get it done. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a lot of hope for the millennials and the younger generation to help us older people get real because mm -hmm. we've left a giant turd for you guys to fix. <laughs> I like those grandkids. So, you know, I don't uh -huh. want the world to go upside down, you know, for them Yeah, absolutely. or for anyone else. And when you're in the investing business and you can look forward and you see things clearly that others don't, that is opportunity. You know, where can we take this 
this genre and make it institutionally almost perfect. In other words, the standards of an institutional investor, mm -hmm. you know, rigor of research, uh, investment, you know, experience and discipline to bring that to the mass dollars that are out there in order to gather those assets so that you can deploy uh, a real change. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there are solutions. It just takes capital. So if your standard are the benchmarks that investors choose to benchmark portfolios, then what your research has to do is to make sure that the characteristics of, of that performance are available in these particular sectors and or sleeves, uh -huh. you know, how, how, how you looked at it. And what we did was, you know, a, over a decade ago is began investing in those types of investments in food and water and energy and healthcare and, you know, stocks and bonds and hedge funds and private real estate, all of the asset classes and could demonstrate historical performance data that we can perform at or better. The long-term wins, and if you get wind to your back, it's like sailing. I mean, you want to go with the wind or you want to go against it. You know how hard you're going to work on this big old boat to go against it. So um, you're confident that we can make that shift if we choose to make that shift because I, there are people yeah. There, yeah, there are people who think it's impossible to feed the world that way, and I'm not one of those people, but you're, no, you're also no, no, quite you, that's, No. They're out no. there. I'm from a generation where and marched at the Great Peace March in San Francisco in 1970, and we made a difference in the Vietnam War. So I wish there was more of us that would rekindle. Can you imagine a million people in San Francisco on the street, down Market Street? Wow. But that happened. That was the classic, you know, Daisy down the barrel of the gun photos that you'll see all over uh -huh. Kate Ashbury. You know, I, I'm skeptical I, I, a little bit, but I've always felt that opportunity was a spark, and you never knew where the fire was going to come from. We might be seeing it now in the women's movement. We, we don't know where or how it will come. And I hope we have learned from history that unless we solve and fix the global problems, we'll just fight over them. And that's not a very good solution for grandpa. You said your your business is, what, 55% yeah. women-owned? Um, women, uh -huh. women right. uh -huh. And all of your boards have women We try to have, them. yeah, not all of them. We're not, okay. we have some industries that's, that's tough, but we yeah. are working on it. Um, like an industry in particular? Electrical transmission. Yeah. A tough one. Um, and so when you create a board, when you have a private company, you're looking for skill sets, not sure. just, you know, and, and, it, and a company evolves, so sometimes early a board is different, but... I think the key to women is just the way there's just diversity of thought and experience and it works well. What I've found on the companies that we invest in that have women in the C-suite and women on the boards, they perform the best. Statistically, we could prove that women own businesses, women run businesses, have higher financial metrics than those who are solely, you know, male. The time, times yeah. are changing, yeah. you know, 50 years ago. Now that's a giant whoa. difference. So whoa. Um, whoa. Whoa. I've, I've got hope. <laughs> yeah. Where you're at now in your life, you're very successful to a person my age without knowing much of your backstory. It could look unattainable. So I wanted to go way back to the towing company and have you tell us um, what life was like then, how much money you started the towing company with. And, and um, just give us a little picture of, the, of what you were... You, you had to put yourself in Eugene in 1971, you know, the epicenter of the left of center movement in the United States. 
um, and I was right in the middle of it and I had gone up to uh, or uh, Eugene to ostensibly go to graduate school, but I decided that that wasn't going to work and uh, had this really weird experience with this traditional tower and, you know, it really wasn't doing much. And my buddy and I said, you know, this, let's see what this towing thing, I have no idea why I laugh about it now. How old were you? 21. 21. 22. Something okay. Like that. And uh, we bought a hand crank towing unit. I think we paid about $1,300 for it. Uh-huh. We went and got business cards printed up and a stencil and we put Al's towing on the side of the of the truck. And, uh, you know, before we knew it, people were calling us and we had no idea what the frick we were doing. Uh-huh. Uh, was your friend Al or was that random? No, my last name is Arnrich and his last name was Lutz. So we said okay. Al's towing. Perfect. And then, you know, it, it evolved in Eugene to Al's towing keep off the hook. And uh-huh. we had a lot of fun with, you know, being towers. And it was completely out of character. I hate tow trucks. I hate grease. I hate anything about it. But I wasn't doing anything. And the business grew over the next eight years to be about 12 trucks and uh, then it was time for me to move to Portland and start the restaurant and so I sold the land and the trucks and had a big party and Al's towing went away just like it was supposed to you know you were young hippies you you know you had no cares in the world and that um, was your first business that was the first business uh-huh. and then I went to Portland and started Delavan's now that one required a lot more capital but I had capital at that time from selling all the no, from selling the land uh-huh. um, and then with that I had money to invest in the restaurant and then we had the restaurant for four years it was really successful it was probably at the time way early because now Portland's pretty foodie in a much bigger city mm-hmm. um, it had incredible live music, jazz, all the jazz greats from 79 to 84 played there. It was an incredible venue. My wife was a pastry chef. You know, I ran the restaurant and then uh, we started having more babies. And then I went into financial services. I was a stockbroker and that's kind of like working for yourself. Uh-huh. So I trained, got licensed and then realized that that business was really good for the stock brokerage company, but not very good for the customer. Uh-huh. And I liked my customers and I thought I could build a business. So I kind of shifted to this advisory consulting business in 1991. And then uh, with four of us left with enough revenue to eat, I took a huge pay cut. I'm, I'm highly confident. Uh-huh. And my wife saves money. So uh-huh. you know, we always ate and could yeah. pay our bills. And then we just grew it. And, you know, we were really successful growing it. And we have, you know, customers that have been with us for decades and employees that have been with us for decades, many of which became partners. And and now I'm on the glide out of my career with more energy and experience than when I started. <laughs> Are you on the glide out? I have the ability to control my schedule. So uh-huh. I take a month off every quarter. I work two months and have a month off. And my wife and I travel. You travel. Uh, uh-huh. And so as long as I can do that, and then I think it'll go, you know, maybe to half time. Yeah, not doing this stuff would be difficult. Uh-huh. And what I've observed is people who've retired and don't keep active doing something either charitable, they get old, they get decrepit, they get sick, they they die early. Their their life isn't very fruitful at the end. And mm-hmm. I think it's time you should just like, you know, max it out. Just a 26 second break here to thank my supporters. This podcast is 100% funded by supporter donations, and I hope to keep it that way. It costs money to produce and professionally edit Contrapreneur. If you are willing and able, there are several ways you can donate. Venmo me at Contrapreneur or go to the website to learn a couple other ways to donate. Every dollar helps. Really. It's Contrapreneurship.com slash donate. All right. Thanks. Back to the main event. 
wanted to talk about, you've got um, through three by five, a couple of businesses that you're investing mm -hmm. in that we mm -hmm. talked about, mm -hmm. um, Fish People uh -huh. and Rubicon. How do you decide to invest in them? Do they come to you? Do you find them? And then mm -hmm. what do you look for? Well, one of the um, benefits of being in business for 30 years and making treating everybody as partners, you make really great connections. So when people know what you're looking for, they tend to be your source of deal flow, mm -hmm. is your network. We are very serial with our CEOs. So we right now we have two or three CEOs who we've already sold businesses for and now they're running another company. Mm -hmm. um, the CEOs bring us business mm -hmm. um, and our friends in the industry bring us business. And they know what we like and we're really different, we're flexible, we're not necessarily pegged in one perfect little genre of the private equity realm. And, the essence of a great investment firm, a private equity firm, is their deal flow. If you have really good deal flow, the rest of it you can put kind of put together and learn. Mm -hmm. If you have shitty deal flow, it doesn't work. So you want to get up to the top of that pecking order, and then your opportunities are better. Your, your mm -hmm. chances of success increase. So you do that by building relationships. Mm -hmm. So you have to be accretive to the company. You have to have add value over and above the money. Mm -hmm. And sure. we do a pretty good job at that. We don't have a whole lot of companies, so we can stay pretty focused. I talk to we all. talk to our CEOs all the time. How did you learn all of this? Was it just by going out there and being in the rough? You say you read a lot. Um, who, did you have mentors that? Well, if you built businesses, they're all the same. Businesses are all the same. Uh -huh. How much revenue? How much expenses? How much margins? I mean, if you think your business is different, you're nuts. Uh -huh. They're all the same. So all you have to do is pay attention. You analyze and you work to get as much information in. We believe you got to make a lot of phone calls, not just a few. Mm -hmm. It's hard work that separates weed and chaff. And uh -huh. um, so that's how we learned, had some successes and failures, and you learned from your failures. And you had the capital because your customers really like this. And then you were able to literally build another business uh, in the 3 by 5 group. What does um, success mean to you? Less resistance. The energy flows good. Uh-huh. That's very I, I'm not into resistance anymore. Yeah. I, I've, I've decided it's a bad thing. And, and, and when I encounter it, I generally, I don't want to argue about it anymore. So I'll just kind of move away. So I think, sure. I think it's really all about energy flow. And, and so success is having, you know, good energy flow, a smile. You know, hey, yeah. waking up in the morning is really successful. You keep your goals and objectives relatively attainable. I think you it's know, so important to celebrate those little things. It changes how you perceive your whole life. You know, be the so best fun. husband you can be. Be the best or best partner you can be. Be It's doing the things that your destiny, you know, forced you to do. Just do them well. The fortune to become a parent, be a good parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fortune to fall in love, be a good lover. I mean, it's... Pretty straightforward. I, I, I think it, rather than change society to be socialism, communism, or some form thereof of cap, a different kind of capitalism, I, I think the human spirit works well in capitalism where there's opportunity. I mean, until there's a better structure. Mm -hmm. So money is a powerful thing. And until the system changes, I mean, it's that's kind of what yeah. you've got to work in. Working you know? within the framework. Right. So I think deploying private capital is really the way the change will be accelerated because governments mm -hmm. come and go. What are some things that you do and have done throughout your life to um, enable you to do what you do? Some personal practices that have um, kept you grounded and open to that energy flow that um, has allowed you to be so successful with your businesses? Um, in, in the world of financial service, I'm not wired about the money. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's not something, it's not the end of, of, of you know, or, or the end all or the be all of, of one's 
life. But it's pretty simple. It's kind of funny, but the Beatles had it right. There just needs to be more love in the world. Uh-huh. So I grew up with a lot of love. So what made me successful was I kind of think whatever ingredients that I needed for me, I got when I was growing up from my family. And, my, and so I was launched with purpose and conviction and confidence. Uh-huh. And that's the best thing you can do for your kids, I think, is uh-huh. push them out that way and let them hit the world hard. And uh-huh. you know, I, I, I did. Final question. Who are business people or businesses that you um, look up to and admire or mentors of yours that you have learned from? Mentors, I was really fortunate to befriend and then manage the assets of what I call Mr. Oregon was uh, uh, John and Betty Gray. John was a captain of industry. My dad had died and John and I became very close. And so I was very fortunate to have another father figure after my dad died. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from him was, you know, tell it like it is, put your money where your mouth is and work hard. You know, uh-huh. And it was, you know, and, the, and it was pretty simple and, and, and it was one of those kinds of magical relationships. In terms of companies that I admire, uh, I really admire Fish People Seafood for their mission and what they're doing. Zero Mass Water, the, that those particular CEOs are sort of so infectious with their, um, I mean, you're just really proud to be part of them, whether you own, own part of them or not. I think all the companies in our portfolio are doing what, you know, are, are all admirable, but for me, I think it was my family, and then I had this one really strong connection, uh-huh. um, in the, you know, in, in the last part of his life, where you know I, I was able to be mentored by a real pro. Just absorbing his energy was enough. This guy was 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 really cool. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks for listening to episode three. If you liked it, I'd really appreciate it if you gave us a positive review. You can also support the production and editing of our work by Venmoing us at Contrapreneur or going to contrapreneurship.com slash donate. Even a dollar will help me pay to have these edited so I can keep producing Contrapreneur. That's contrapreneurship.com slash donate. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Lou Fontana and Louise Ulrich, the husband-wife duo behind Santa Barbara's Superfood Bakery. I found them literally biking by their welcoming window. Their energetic kitchen, visible from the shop, is full of the highest quality ingredients available and offers something for every eating style. We talk about how they got started, what it's like running a business as a couple, and the interconnection of community and business. If you want to be sure not to miss an episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are listened to. You can also find us on social media as Contrapreneur. 